Part 7. Ignorance and Convenience Nothing is more terrible than to see ignorance in action. This is what Goethe said. Nothing is more terrible than to see ignorance in action. Ignorance means that you do not know certain things. We are all therefore ignorant in some respect. Here again are the words of Mary Catherine Bateson, quoted in the prologue of this podcast. Open quotation. We are not what we know, but we are, we are what we are willing to learn. End quotation. But there are those who will deliberately ignore facts that do not fit with their model of reality. Those who purposely ignore well-established accessible facts those who are not willing to learn. There is a term to describe this unfortunately pervasive behavior, seen for instance with creationists, vaccine opponents, climate change deniers, homophobes, racists, conspiracy theorists, ufologists, etc. It is called willful ignorance. It describes the denial of any sensory input that does not fit with one's inner model of reality. The underlying culprits are cognitive biases manifested in several forms such as confirmation bias and causal bias. In the day-to-day -day English language, the use of the word ignorant has switched to imply deliberate ignorance, that is, intentionally ignoring established facts, evidence, and or reasonable opinions if they are contrary to one's belief. This can be achieved by inventing excuses such as this source is unreliable or simply false news as a certain American president canned. This experiment is flawed or this opinion is biased. Reasoning becomes a circular argument where one cannot agree with a specific source because it is untrustworthy and because it is incompatible with his or her stance. Maintaining this denial of reality can entail outright refusal to read, hear, or study the actual factual arguments. Derek Buck said it so clearly. If you think education is expensive, try ignorance. The cost of ignorance is insidiously permeate. <coughs> Excuse me. The cost of ignorance is insidiously permeating into multiple facets of our society. For instance, conspiracy theorists are rarely involved in constructive political engagements. They instead lean toward political violence and tend to exhibit racist behaviors. As is the case with believers in alternative medicine, conspiracy theorists tend to be more at risk for serious health conditions such as HIV. To subscribe to the discredited findings that vaccines can cause autism and to reject well-established medical treatments such as antipsychotics. Thomas Rainsford Lounsbury said it also in his own way, It never ceases to surprise me at the infinite capacity of the human mind to resist the introduction of useful knowledge. Close quotation. By listening to this podcast, you, the listener, are curious. 
open-minded, and starving for facts, for observations, for links, for context. However, nobody is immune to be biased, to not accurately take in the reality we live in. In our daily lives, we all con unconsciously use mental shortcuts known as cognitive biases, which have been formed through how we are where how we were raised, our previous experience, our cultural background, our education, our circle of friends, etc. While these shortcuts are convenient in our society, there is a cost we pay, our inability to actually grasp the world inside and around us. At birth, until three months, we do not have a fovea, and the image of a face consists of separate elements such as mouth, nose, eyes, that do not form an actual face yet. Each element has features such as a smile. Now, when we read, the images formed, at least for some of us, might only capture features but not the whole picture. When asked to actually imagine a specific object mentioned in a book, such as a house, it is hard to draw it as a whole, but before needing to draw it, the house did have salient features. Out of convenience, we might hold onto features rather than the whole complete picture. Moreover, the images we recall from reading tend to be vague because our visual memories are made of fragments and therefore are not like recalled photos. Remember, the retina is not like a camera. It doesn't say, take photos that it sends to the brain. Different aspects of the visual images are decomposed and sent to be reconstructed by the brain. So that was the first part of this podcast. We can and do live without complete pictures. Peter Mendelssohn, in his book What We See When We Read, takes us on a fascinating journey where we realize that everybody creates his or her own world from reading. Moreover, this world is an illusion since it has to be rebuilt every time we try recalling what we read. Commenting on reading stories, Mendelssohn states, open quotes, and the more we are immersed, the less we are able to bear upon the experience in which we are absorbed. Thus, when we discuss the feeling of reading, we are really talking about the memory of having read. Astute authors deliberately leave out certain details about characters, objects, events, so that we have more freedom to create personal images. In a way, being deliberately vague is an old tool used by leaders, politicians, demagogues. We will see below an example of a cult leader who deliberately stays silent using his eyes to connect with his followers. And when speaking, banks on vague statements. This technique is infamous within fortune tellers and tarot readers. How seemingly paradoxical is it to address a part on ignorance and convenience using reading as an example? Writing and reading as well as speaking and listening are our ultimate tools to pass on knowledge to discuss, to grow, to attempt capturing the complex reality we live in. If anything, reading or listening to podcasts, audiobooks or conferences is essential to counteract ignorance and convenience. My point 
is that one must be cognizant of the traps we can fall into, whether it is through text or oral discourses. Another powerful mode of learning is via arts, painting, sculptures, theater, cinema, dancing, music, and any other forms of performing arts. Ultimately, we construct our own images, our own reality, even when reading or listening. More and more, we also rely on videos to communicate, which can add another dimension to potential biases. Images can be imposed or also suggested. Regardless of how you take in the world, you are constantly vulnerable to cognitive biases. Numerous factors will affect how you behave, what decisions you make, what and whom you believe, how you behave and interact socially, and finally, how and what you remember. There are hundreds of distinct cognitive biases. Feel free to use your favorite search engine to look up lists of cognitive biases. You will find an extensive repository for many such biases in political figures. The two main ones underlying ignorance and convenience according to peer-reviewed scientific papers are confirmation bias and causal bias. The former refers to cherry-picking the facts that support your beliefs and dismissing others that go against them, as well as interpreting ambiguous evidence as corroborative and focusing on select possibilities, all of which do confirm your beliefs. Such behavior is reinforced by emotional stances and their desired outcome. The second bias, causal bias, is related to the fact that humans have evolved to detect and establish causal relationship as a mean to predict future events and adjust their behavior accordingly. In the fifth part of this podcast, we mentioned the theory first established by Kenneth Craig about mental models as predictors of potential future outcomes to allow the implementation of the most adaptive response in our environment. Errors can arise, and we saw with examples of optical illusions in the first part, as we saw. Magicians bank on these flaws, where they purposely lead us to establish causal links that do not actually exist. There is increasing evidence that false attributions of cause and effects are in part responsible for why people believe in superstition and pseudoscience. One important take-home message is that the correlation of two events does not necessarily imply that one causes the other. How do we minimize causal biases? Well, teaching how to think scientifically, if you prefer another word than science, teaching how to think critically, um, what is factual and what is not. What are the actual underlying causes of the facts I'm observing? Here is a quote from Andrew McCabe from his book, The Threat. How do you progress as a culture if you set out to destroy any common agreement as to what constitutes a fact? You can't have conversation, you can't have debates, you can't come to conclusions, at the same time calling out the transgressor as a way of giving more oxygen to the lie 
Now it's a news story and the lie is being mentioned not just in some website that publishes unattributable gossip but in every reputable newspaper in the country. Phil played Bad Astronomy, his book. Phil Plate said, The more we teach people to simply accept anecdotal stories, hearsay, cherry-picked data, and frankly out-and-out lies, the harder it gets for people to think clearly. If you cannot think clearly, you cannot function as a human being. I cannot stress this enough. Uncritical thinking is tearing this world to pieces. End quotation from Phil Plate his book, Bad Astronomy. How very, so very, very painful can it be for some to have to explain their political views and details with logic. Some fall back on emotions. Demagogic leader bank on vague statements full of emotional black and white shortcuts that are not based in the complex reality we live in. The tools are remarkably similar between such dangerous leaders. Scapegoating, fear-mongering, lying, emotional oratory, and personal charisma, accusing opponents of weakness and disloyalty, promising the impossible, violence and physical intimidation, personal insults and ridicule, vulgarity and outrageous behavior, faulty posturing, gross oversimplification, and attacking the news media. The 45th American president comes to mind. Who has time for deep reflections? We are bombarded by stimuli. We are tired. We often mock someone who leans towards intellectual lingo or reflection. We are starving for light talk. And we feed our entertainment such as light TV shows and dubious YouTube channels. We are so very tired, we need to relax. How am I going to get people to think with this podcast? Who will listen to it? There is even the idea that this podcast is for an elite. I sincerely hope not. This podcast is for the curious, and the curious will share with others. Perhaps teachers will listen to it. Perhaps its content will be shared on mainstream media. One can dream. The need is here anyway. Now a quote from Carl Sagan. I worry that especially as the millennium edges nearer, pseudoscience and superstition will seem year by year more tempting, the siren song of unreason more sonorous and attractive. Where have we heard it before, whenever our ethnic or national prejudices are aroused? in times of scarcity, during challenges to national self-esteem or nerve, when we agonize about our diminished cosmic place and purpose, or when fanaticism is bubbling up around us, then habits of thought familiar from ages past reach for the controls. Well said, Carl Sagan. Pseudo-scientific beliefs tap in common cognitive biases as we mentioned, the two main ones being confirmation bias and causal bias, as we said. It requires quite an effort 
to understand the documented events and mechanism responsible for our evolution. It is much more convenient to believe that life was created by a supernatural being. Still, today, despite the overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary, creationism and intelligent design are thriving. There is also the notion of comfort in one's beliefs. As Michel de Montaigne aptly said, Ignorance is the softest pillow on which a man can rest his head. Close quotation. A few centuries later, Alexander Solzhenitsyn concurred. He said, We do not err because truth is difficult to see. It is visible at a glance. We err because it is more comfortable. Close quotation. I feel a need to share a quote from Immanuel Kant. He said, Laziness and cowardice are the reasons why such a large part of mankind gladly remain minors all their lives, long after nature has freed them from external guidance. They are the reasons why it is so easy for others to set themselves up as guardians. It is so comfortable to be a minor. Close quotation. Here is another pertinent reflection from a discussion I had with a previous student of mine, Dr. Greg Gilmore. Greg reflected, open quotation, I was thinking that the current rise of populism coincides with the fact of everyday existence becoming more complicated. Resentment and outright rejection of expertise of any kind is an alternative to accepting a lack of understanding and control. Substitute a version of reality that's simple, digestible, and whose palatability isn't constrained by facts. Close quotation. While one wants to open a constructive discussion with believers, those who rely on pseudoscience are descending a slippery slope toward magical thinking using oversimplification, confirmation biases, and causal biases, or two main culprits. Pseudoscientists are at times fueled by attraction to fame and money, speakers, gurus, solutions, wow factors. They prey on sincere spiritual seekers and they claim to hold the ultimate answers to natural questions. What is the meaning of life? What is my purpose in life? Why are we here? What is the ultimate truth? I say, follow the money and the power that these leaders have over their followers. In this book, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religions, Sam Harris warns us about predatory gurus, fanatic preachers, about the holders of truth. Let's hear Bertrand Russell again. Yes, I have a bias toward his thinking process. Bertrand Russell said the following, The whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. Close quotation. Doubting everything is, after all, a key process of the scientific approach. Why do some follow, often blindly, those who claim to hold the truth? They can be individuals, groups, political parties, sects, religions, etc. Another skeptic, Michael Shermer, in the believing brain, eloquently reviews the neurological basis of beliefs 
It is beyond the scope of this podcast to go over the exhaustive scientific literature describing the neurophysiological changes underlying beliefs. Allow me to present one important player, the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine plays a key role in the reward system and in learning by associations. For instance, Skinner trained rats to associate a specific stimulus such as a sound with a reward. After training, the sound alone was sufficient to increase dopamine levels. He called repetition-induced behaviors such this one as operant conditioning. In humans, Christine Moore and Peter Brugger established a positive correlation between brain dopamine levels and beliefs in ghosts, gods, spirits, and conspiracy theories. Higher dopamine levels were linked with the tendency to extract meaning out of noise, to make sense out of nonsense. Believers have a tendency to find patterns where there is none, to find meaning where there is none, to read too much into a specific situation, especially if this situation is repeated again and again. I cannot help but share my own experience with the holder of the truth, John DeRuter, who happens to profess in the same city where I reside, Edmonton, Canada. The founder of the College of Integrated Philosophy, John, as his followers call him, started as a Christian preacher espousing Jesus' look when at some point he claimed he held the truth. There was no longer any need for the Bible. This led the router to upgrade his bookstore meetings to a large auditorium venue, the Oasis Center, which he had built for his teachings, but also to be rented at a cost for weddings and various events. During his three weekly meetings, about 350 attendees on average, each paying $10 per meeting, the router essentially stares in silence at each member of the audience, one by one, for what feels like an eternity, up to three hours sometime, during which his face is displayed on large screens. At some point, John will invite an attendee, carefully pre-screened, whose face now appears zoomed in on the screens, to sit in front of him on the elevated stage. What an honor. Before each meeting, you have the opportunity of purchasing a meal and or a beverage so you can share the same space as John. He might even talk to you slowly and yes, blink. More recently, his blinking has increased, which has inspired his followers to do the same. They blink often. One can also attend week-long seminars for $200. Over the years, the router has had its share of scandals, cheating on his wife with two sisters, Benita and Katrina Van Sass, and even publicly admitting having had a calling to justify sexual relations with many of his female followers. According to the Global Mail article by Jana Pruden, published on November 25, 2017, Benita Van Sass wrote an affidavit in 2009 in which she estimated the router's personal assets at nearly $9 million Canadian, including his equity in the Oasis Center and a 75,000 monster truck, the home purchased by Katrina, and his name um, 
in his name and a personal income estimated to $232,000 per year. I do know an ardent follower who moved to Edmonton so he could be with John, not only at the Oasis Center, but during his many worldwide trips, helping his spiritual leader cover the travel expense. Sadly, the follower's devotion reached a point at which his partner asked him to choose between her and John. John won. My friend lost a wonderfully loving partner. For my friend and all other followers, John is the living embodiment of truth. He is the Messiah. I asked my friend, What will happen when John dies? He replied, So will the truth. There are new rumors that John might be grooming his son. Why do his loyal followers not see through the rooters' obvious manipulative, predatory, and chiefly self-serving behavior? Well, that's a big question. While vehemently refuting the title of cult leader, John the Rooter employs well-established patterns attributed to gurus. According to Paul Juicy, it is all about the Rooter's silences. Followers can project that the leader understands their deep questions. On the other side, followers can also feel dominated by their leader's silence as if he were punishing them. Finally, the interminable staring compounded by the leader's silence could induce a feeling of intimacy typically reserved for lovers. In other words, they might feel reciprocal love, and yes, their dopamine levels will likely increase, among other changes in brain activity. Not only charismatic truth bearers, but also mostly well-intentioned advice givers abound. It is as if the instruction manuals were more complicated than the tasks they aim at achieving, at least this is the feeling I get when browsing through the self-help book section in a bookstore or library or online. And why it is that each of these mentors have to publish several books and in some cases produce endless series of DVDs or online subscriptions to teachings and of course conferences, many conferences, all of which are available for a moderate fee. So the science is ubiquitous, and yes, money is involved. Believers are willing to pay financially and otherwise. In the best-case scenario, when seeking health benefits, believers might experience a placebo effect, which is real, but healing might need several reiterations at a dear financial cost. In the book they edited Pseudoscience, The Conspiracy Against Science, Allison and James Kaufman gathered scientists who use evidence-based approaches to respond to pseudoscientists. Reading the copiously referenced 510 pages book, one feels the frustration of having to repeat facts, rebut the same erroneous arguments inexorably, putting scientists in a defensive position. How did scientists end up on the accused's bench? Their detractors are not bound to the same rules. Like the cavemen, detractors get dopamine surge by winning while using facts. They win by getting people to doubt science. This is where willful ignorance makes our society sick as a metastatic cancer. I feel as if I had to repeat again the same arguments as if fighting cancer. I feel the frustration 
I will let the outspoken advocate for evidence-based psychological treatment, Scott Lillianfeld, summarize valuable lessons in in his um, chapter that he wrote for Allison and James Coffson's book, uh, My Own Indulgent Inconvenience, is to quote Scott Lillianfeld. So here's the quotation, and there will be um, a total of 10 arguments. So one, we all, we are all subjects to cognitive biases. Two, we are largely unaware of our biases. Three, science is a systematic set of safeguards against biases. Four, scientific thinking doesn't come naturally to humans. Five, scientific thinking is exasperatingly domain-specific. Even Nobel Prize winners can fall prey to pseudoscience in fields outside their area of expertise. Six, pseudoscience and science lie on a spectrum. Seven, pseudoscience is characterized by a set of fallible but useful warning signs such as an absence of cell correction, overuse of ad hoc maneuvers to immunize claims from refutation, use of scientific-sounding but vacuous language, extraordinary claims in the absence of compelling evidence over reliance on anecdotal and testimonial assertions, avoidance of peer review, etc. Number 8. Scientific claims can be wrong. Pseudo-scientific claims differ from erroneous claims in that they are deceptive. They appear to be scientific, but they are not. 9. Scientific and pseudo-scientific thinking are cut from the same basic psychological cloth. Heuristic, which is really mental shortcuts or rules of thumb, are invaluable in everyday life, but when misapplied, they can lead to mistaken conclusions. And finally, 10. Skepticism differs from cynicism. Skeptics must guard against dismissing implausible claims out of disconfirmation bias. End quotation. Just as a reminder of the societal cancer that represents pseudoscience, below I will provide you a list um, of current examples of fake approaches proposed to live a healthier life. Who doesn't want that? Not the sham aspect, but the certainty of a better life. Get your wallet. Before I do so, not get my modest wallet, but present the infamous list. I just had a thought about compassion. Remember when I stated that the point of beliefs such as religions was not to simply say there is no God, as Richard Dawkins says, but rather to understand why people believe and to acknowledge that the ability and tendency to believe is an offshoot, exaptation of the evolution of our brain to create mental models. Using compassion, one has to realize that beliefs in external agents such as God or gods or other entities can act as stabilizing beacons with concrete measurable changes in brain activity. Here I am comparing pseudoscience with the societal cancer. Pseudoscientific beliefs can exert measurable effects analogous to placebo effects, also called sham groups, in experimental settings. As I mentioned above, the difference is that pseudotherapies are implemented on a false premise and at a cost. 
I will provide example considered as pseudoscience in that they are not supported by scientific evidence. Just to complicate matter, nothing is black and white. While science is the best tool we have to grasp reality, the scientific approach remains imperfect. As such, we shall be humble and not hastily judge those who choose not to trust science. You can examine the limits of science for each of the examples below. While you might categorize some examples as obviously flawed, others might fall into grayer zones. Let's start with acupuncture and acupressure, adrenal fatigue, Alexander techniques, alternative cancer treatments, anthroposophical medicine, apitherapy, applied kinesiology, aromatherapy, astrology, attachment therapy, auriculotherapy, autistic enterocolitis, Ayurveda, balneotherapy, Bates methods for better eyesight, biological terrain assessment, biodynamic agriculture, biorhythms, blood type diet, body memory, biodynamic somatic psychology and analysis system, Bowen techniques, brain gym, candida hypersensitivity, chakra healing, chelation therapy, chiropractic, Chemo, chemo, chromotherapy, colloidal silver, colon cleansing, craniosacral therapy, crystal healing, cupping therapy, dianetics, detoxification, ear kindling, electrohomeopathy, electromagnetic hypersensitivity, energy medicine, facilitated communication, fate healing, fasting, feng shui. Feldenkrais method, functional medicine, Germanic new medicine, graphology, hair analysis, healing jewelry, hemisync, hexagonal water, homeopathy, hypnosis and hypnotherapy, iridiology, Quranic scientific foreknowledge, leaky gut syndrome, lighting process, macrobiotic diets, magnet therapy, mimetics, morgellons, moxibustion, Meyer Briggs type indicator, Nambudripads allergy elimination techniques, naturopathy, negative air ionization therapy, neuro linguistic programming, oil pulling, orthomolecular medicine, osteopathic manipulative medicine, palmistry, parapsychology, primal therapy, polarity therapy, psychokinesis, pulse diagnosis. Quantum mysticism, radionics, Reiki, reflexology, Rolfing rhombology, therapeutic touch, tin foil hat, traditional Chinese medicine, tree healing, urine therapy, vitalism, and as supported by the 45th American president, wind turbine, wind turbine syndrome. Whew. That was it. That was the list. Let us single out one, just one from the list. Um, psychoanalysis. Is it science or pseudoscience? While Freud's approach was revolutionary and remains pertinent today in the field of psychopathology, it is. Um, it received vibrant criticism from well-established brain scientists including Ramon y Cajal and the philosopher of science Karl Popper. 
Popper had a brief honeymoon with psychoanalysis followed by the critique that predictions from this approach are not amenable to experimental verification. More recently, other scientists have expressed reservation, to put it diplomatically, with psychoanalysis, including psychologist Steven Pinker, linguist Noam Chomsky, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, and physicist Richard Feynman. Feynman. For what some might consider the nail in the coffin, one could read, if you have not done so yet, the 2017 book by English professor Frederick C. Cruz, Freud, The Making of an Illusion. A second quick example, let us consider homeopathy, which 34% of Europeans consider being scientific, according to a 2005 European Commission report. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemics, public health providers in Canada and the United Kingdom are offering to cover the cost of homeopathy to tackle the retroviral infection. One would like to assume that public health providers should lead by example and not rely on pseudoscience. However, their gesture promotes that scientifically implausible remedy can work against a retrovirus, SARS-CoV-2, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. Proponents of homeopathy rely on an external agent, quantum physics, to hold onto a scientific explanation. As we saw with dualists, quantum physics is an all-you-can-eat buffet when it comes to relying on external agents. But there is more than homeopathy. In Canada, chiropractors, naturopaths, herbalists, and holistic healers are advertising approaches to treat COVID-19. Ignorance is costly to society. How do you address misinformation? Rather than confronting believers directly, the preemptive dissemination of factual evidence is one option proposed by Gorman and Gorman in 2020. The rationale is to make people more resistant to false information. One must resist the temptation to ridicule those who believe in pseudoscience, but instead engage the curious and convince the unconvinced. Not all beliefs in pseudoscience should be considered on the same basis. The roots could be quite different. Considering all subjects that fall under pseudoscience, vocal advocates for alternate medicines might be shocked that their beliefs fall under the same category as perhaps more sensational or extreme examples. Take Ancient Aliens, 15 documentary-style seasons presenting historical texts, archaeology, and legends as evidence of past human extraterrestrial contact. How about 23 seasons of Most Haunted, a series showcasing paranormal investigation into haunted locations using psychic mediums and scientific equipment, aired since 2002 and still ongoing. Another example, Ghost Hunters, 13 seasons aired since 2004, which follows a group of real-life paranormal researchers investigated, investigating haunted houses Starring trade plumbers Jason Oz and Grant Wilson who lead the Atlantic Paranormal Society. To cut to the chase, a quick internet search retrieved 31 paranormal TV shows and documentaries, many of which qualified as true and scary. Here is your guaranteed entertainment. At the end of the day, series and documentaries are money makers. 
The cost is that some viewers buy into it, no pun intended. In the USA, repeated surveys confirm that the majority of its population acknowledges holding paranormal or pseudo-scientific beliefs. Three out of four Americans believe in at least one type of paranormal activity and have subscribed to conspiracy theories, half of Americans. In the mid-80s in Canada and Great Britain, a link was established between believers and scientific illiteracy, as defined by the inability to correctly identify basic scientific principles. However, more recently, and conceivably of further concern, two American studies published in the Skeptic magazine, non-peer-reviewed, however, reported that the level of science education as a whole does not predict whether someone will be less inclined to believe in paranormal or pseudoscientific subjects. You will ask, what is the point of learning science if it does not make you less susceptible to fall for pseudoscientific beliefs? Part of the answer lays in a 2018 peer-reviewed study published by biologist James A. Wilson. The key is not to remember scientific facts only, but rather to develop critical thinking. And unfortunately, teaching establishments rarely include in their curricula such courses. Wilson studied the impact of a three-credits, fourth-year university lecture-based course called Science and Critical Thinking on Beliefs in Pseudoscience. A total of 313 students filled pre- and post-course questionnaires. He found that Following the critical thinking course, overall beliefs in paranormal and pseudoscientific subcategories lowered 6.8 to 28.9% except for superstition, which did not significantly change. Change in belief had both a gender and religion effect, with greater reductions among religious students and females. Here's another example of a promising intervention, which one could say is part of critical thinking. It addresses causal biases in adolescents. Barbera and colleagues, 2013, taught a group of students how to scientifically establish a link between a cause and an effect, comparing the probability of an outcome in the presence or the absence of the potential cause. Here is how the study was designed. Two groups were compared, one that received the teaching called the intervention group, and the other that did not, called the control group. This is what I call preaching by example. Both groups performed a standard contingency learning task that involved fake medicines that typically produce causal illusions. The participants in the experimental group made more realistic causal judgments than did those in the control group, which served as a baseline. Where is the entertainment factor? Why are there no reality shows about this? How do we reach into the deepest corners of the world? Call me idealistic, but this should be taught and passed on to all human beings. As much as we teach our kids to walk, to be toilet trained, to be socially appropriate, we must teach them to think critically. We need not only facts, but also critical thinking in our society, more than ever. Not respecting facts and not thinking critically about facts 
making bias and irrelevant links are one of the most severe threats to our society. They are real threats. James A. Wilson states, open quotation, All of these behaviors represent a socially destabilizing force and potentially a widespread health hazard, counteracting unsupported beliefs by teaching critical thinking and promoting science literacy is therefore important to the stability and health of society. Close quotation. At the expense of an open-minded and so-called constructive pedagogic approach, pseudoscience finds its way even in science classrooms. Well-intentioned teachers might underestimate how hard it can be to have rational discussions with students defending pseudoscientific or absolute beliefs. Instead of teaching critical thinking, the teacher becomes a social negotiator facing group pressure to be at least open to the possibility that pseudoscientific beliefs cannot be disproved with absolute certainty. The role model played by the teacher as a compassionate human being compounds the task to inculcate critical thinking. This is why I would advocate for the earliest implementation of critical thinking in schools and in our society in general. In an ideal world, parents or legal guardians should preach critical thinking by example. There is a societal component to beliefs in pseudoscience and the paranormal. For instance, compared to Americans, Scandinavian children have a low propensity to believe in the paranormal. Regardless of our cultural background, we have a natural inclination to reject new evidence because it goes against what we've always done or believed for so long. Dr. Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician, thought it might be a good idea if doctors disinfected their hands between morning autopsies and delivering babies in the afternoon. After some resistance, doctors eventually did obey the strict orders to wash their hands with a disinfecting solution. The mother's death rate caused by pure pyrrole fever plummeted. This incident became so famous that it led to the name Semmelweis reflex. Here are just a few examples. Stomach ulcers are caused by helicobacter pylori provided from food and not by stress or spicy food. 2. Tastes are not mapped on the tongue. 3. Sugar does not make kids hyperactive. 4. We use all of our brain 100%, but in about 2% bursts due to high energy demands. 5. Leprosy is not transmitted by skin contact. 6. Stretching before doing sports does not diminish the risk of injuries. 7. Eating before swimming does not increase your risk of cramps. These are concrete examples, but how about fanatics preaching in the context of politics, religion, sex, and conspiracy theories? How again can you compassionately have a conversation with someone who believes in pseudoscience? You could approach this person by saying, we can live the sacred, be enlightened, nourish ourselves, emancipate ourselves, all from the facts, current evidence, without having to resort to beliefs. How do you convince people that vaccines are good for kids and that handguns are dangerous? Presenting hard facts does not work. Believers will ignore them. 
one could appeal to their emotions, but this would go against the goal of promoting science. Regardless of your approach, when discussing with believers, they might answer. I hold beliefs that I know are true with absolute certainty, and it is with all my soul that I will defend them. Science is simply not sufficiently advanced yet to prove my beliefs. I have the proof. Look at all those phenomena that we cannot yet explain, such as energy transferred after death, telepathy, and trips out of our body. I have my beliefs, and you have yours. Vaccines cause autism, and handguns keep my family safe. You cannot prove that I am wrong, because you have your own beliefs, dear scientist. Well, Troy Campbell from the University of Oregon and Justin Friesen from the University of Winnipeg um, are studying how one can hold to his, her, their beliefs. They're finding support that having false views can be classified as a disease, which one can correct with a logical perusal of facts, and most importantly, education that starts at an early age. That's the whole point. Starting early. Feeding facts into a discussion with believers can, in principle, lessen their biases. As we discuss, people can willfully ignore facts. The two researchers remain optimistic when confronted with this real disease. As part of a child's upbringing, and this applies to adults as well, one must be encouraged to accept ambiguities, to think critically and to recognize and reject strict ideologies. Here's an example of their research. Campbell and Friesen studied the opinion of people with regard to whether same-sex marriage should be legalized. A factual rebuttal against would require facts such as children raised by same-sex parents are worse off or just as well off as children raised by opposite-sex parents. But what if those facts contradicted one's views? They presented one group with made-up facts supporting their opinion and the others with also made-up facts that contradicted their stance. When faced with facts opposing their views, regardless of being pro or cons, the participant resorted to the arguments that the issue is not about facts but more about a moral conviction. Interestingly, when facts supported their opinion, they maintained the opposite view. Facts matter more than morality. Let us continue on the subject of homosexuality. I personally have been deeply saddened by the news of a student who died by suicide. He could not come out of the closet. His gesture was literal and profoundly perturbating. The, he took an overdose of pills in the closet of his bedroom, where his roommates found him dead two days later. His parents' fundamentalist religious beliefs were clear. Romans one twenty six says it is disgraceful and dishonoring. First Corinthians six nine says it will keep a person from the kingdom of God. First Corinthians six eighteen says that homosexual behavior is a sin against one's own body. I heard two years later that his parents are now supporting people who want to come out. The cost the parents and their son both paid is unbearable. One can state that because homosexuality does not allow passing DNA over generation, 
it is against nature. Is that it? Depending on when and where you were, you lived, this might be it indeed. Let's get back to human vision, where fine details vision covers only 5% of our visual field. The brain's filling in the rest with the illusion that we see all with fine details. In addition, our brain relies on learned patterns, creating an image that fails to capture the actual true reality. So depending on when and where you lived, this is the message they might have learned. Homosexuality is against nature. It is wrong. Well, this is the 5% detail vision and filling in without actually capturing what wider context is accessible is right here, is right now. Most sexual relationships do not lead to the passing of DNA. Some that do can involve hatred, ignorance, poverty of means, passing perhaps genes, but not the culture of respect of all forms of life. I shall let the writer Rinaldo Arenas have a say here. Open quotation. Leonardo da Vinci was homosexual. So was Michelangelo, Socrates, Shakespeare, and almost every other figure that has formed what we have come to understand as beauty. Close quotation. I do not know about you, but I would like to understand more about why it seems so hard to grasp reality. Our brain can build highly subjective mental models independently from many sensory inputs which do not represent the requirement for survival and reproduction that allowed us to evolve as Homo sapiens. Part of the answer is that we are social animals. Cognitive scientists Hugo Mercier and Dad Sperber in their book The Enigma of Reason articulate Reason is an adaptation to hypersocial niche humans have evolved for themselves. What seems rational from an intellectual point of view takes a different meaning when reason from a social interactionist perspective. Social circles are incubators for a rich array of cognitive biases, with the most common being confirmation bias, as we discussed before. Members of social circles feed each other with reciprocal confirmation. Internet, social media are a haven for confirmation bias. Algorithms are designed to post similarly minded opinions on your social media feed. Mercier and Sperberg did a study in which participants were given a chance to modify their response to specific questions when presented with contradicting answer from other participants. The trick here was that the answers presented to them as someone else were actually their own, their very own answers and vice versa. The half portion of the group that was oblivious to the trick became the study subject. Close to 60% vehemently rejected their own initial responses using highly critical arguments. According to Mercier and Sperber, such behavior supports that reason evolved to prevent us from being banned by members of our group. Members of closely knit small tribes valued their social ranking, especially when their status prevented them from risking their lives on the hunt. In such social contexts, using reason did not matter as much as winning arguments because winning could determine life or death. In their book, Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us, 
Jack and Sarah Gorman argue that maladaptive attitudes, such as those displayed by vaccine deniers, might arise from this same originally adaptive trait of human evolution. The main culprit confirmation bias has a, psycho- has a physiological component, dopamine surge from processing information supporting one's belief. The pleasure reward centers are activated when one feels they are right, even though they are not. They still get their dopamine rush. Based on findings that the first Homo sapiens tribes date around 100,000 years ago, the results of this study provide an example in which the environment changed too quickly for natural selection to lead to the most adaptive behavior. Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernback concur that original social behavior in the earliest evolution of Homo sapiens has led to maladaptation in our current society. Winning an argument rather than struggling to be factually accurate is how we have evolved as human. At least it is a hypothesis for further studies. In their book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, Sloman and Fernback recount asking Yale graduate students to rate their understanding of everyday devices, including toilets, zippers, um, cylinder locks. While confident they could actually explain the details, most Ivy League students failed miserably to do so. The authors referred to this behavior as the illusion of explanatory depth. Such illusion is analogous to the commonly observed inability of political partisans to exhaustively articulate their views in details with logic as mentioned above. As an avid cyclist, I would assume I could easily draw a bicycle. It turns out that drawing the frame itself is simply not as intuitive as one would assume. Try it. We tend to believe that we know more than we actually do. And the culprit is that tasks are extensively divided in our society. Dating from the first hunting tribes, humans have relied on each other's expertise. Specialization was further exacerbated to meet the needs that sustained sedentarization. Basic needs were agriculture and the domestication of animals, both of which were essential to feed larger tribes, and eventually complex civilization with numerous specialization. New needs emerged, such as storing food and keeping records, which led to the invention of writing and mathematics. Attributing values facilitated the distribution of goods. Monies were invented as civilization developed more advanced technology. Convenience became a goal in itself. How can we make our life easier? How can we produce more with less effort? How can one make more money more rapidly? How can I gain a higher social position to optimize my survival? Such environmental, technological, and societal changes provide a fertile ground for innate behaviors to become maladaptive. Progressively, humans change their environment to accommodate endless needs, some driven by selfish goals. New needs arose from the changing environment itself, an uncontrolled loop where needs create more needs. Moreover, individual members in the group became unaware of the global picture. 
as convenience and a laxidal attitude dominated individual ignorance of the world became more prevalent. In conclusion, some of the behaviors that have allowed us to evolve as homo sapiens are no longer adaptive in our current environment. The question is, how do we make sense in the environment we are rapidly transforming? The short answer is we need to educate ourselves. We need to reflect on what is happening, on what are the consequences of our actions. The hamster must stop running in its wheel and take in the world around him. When over 99% of the world's population has to work long hours at a minuscule salary that is barely sufficient to survive, how can they be motivated to stop and think outside of their own routine? Kurt Hahn wrote the following, There is more to us than we know. If we can be made to see it, perhaps for the rest of our lives we will be unwilling to settle for less. It's time now to move on to part 8. Thank you so much for listening to this part 7. We will move to making sense in our changing environment for the next podcast.